Welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Robert Zirk. My co-host Nolan Bicknell is on vacation this week. On today's show, it's the second part of our 2016 Year in Review. We'll take a look back at more of the great stories we had the opportunity to bring you this past year, including our tour of Fort White Farms. We'll also hear about the Imagination Library, an initiative started by singer-songwriter Dolly Parton to promote early childhood literacy by distributing books to young children. And we'll also revisit our conversation with Camerata Nova's artistic director, Andrew Balfour. All this, some great tunes to ring in the new year, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Good morning and welcome to River City 360. Robert here with you this morning and Happy New Year. It's 2017 and we want to wish all of our listeners a very prosperous, safe and happy new year. As with last week, we're taking a look back at some of the highlights of 2016. And don't forget that you can listen to any or all of our past episodes online at rivercity360.org or by subscribing to the River City 360 podcast. And that's the best way that you can be kept up to speed on all of our new episodes, which we'll be back with starting next week. Coming up after the first song of today's program, we'll revisit our conversation with Jackie Avent, Director of Sustainability at Fort White Farms. She'll tell us all about how they're helping to educate and train youth about nature, agriculture, and sustainability. But before we get to that, we've got to start a New Year's show off with a New Year's classic. Here's Auld Lang Syne by Bing Crosby, right here on River City 360. Should all acquaintance be forgot And never brought to mind Should all acquaintance be forgot And days of old Lang Syne And welcome back to River City 360. Robert and Nolan here with you this morning. Now, as anyone who's been to Fort White knows, there are so many interesting things to do out there. And Nolan, you and I had a chance to check out one very interesting component of 
Fort White. Yeah, Fort White Alive is quite a cool place. We spent some time there a couple weeks ago now. Um, it's a social enterprise that's been in operation uh, since 2003. Through its programs, Fort White Farms helps youth in Winnipeg learn all about agriculture and sustainability while building their confidence and leadership skills. So we had the chance to go through their gardens where they grow fruits, vegetables, and herbs, and then they sell them to local families through a community-supported agriculture program. Um, Nolan, what did you find most memorable about our tour at Fort White? Well, when you say they grow fruit, veg- fruits, vegetables, and herbs, they also grow livestock. Like, they have bison out there, there was rabbits, there was chickens, there was uh, p- pigs, did I mention that? Um, that was probably the most memorable part for me is because, you know, very often we spend so much time in the city, you don't really get to see true nature and true agriculture and true you know animals living free in the sort of wilderness and uh although they're not wild they are you know within a contained pen uh it was just really cool to see the all of the animals that are raised for consumption you know it's it's they're not pets they are raised for a reason and it teaches these kids exactly exactly that how to how to respect animals and how to respect nature so that's probably probably what i took uh, took most uh, away from the experience what about yourself so one of the things that i found most memorable about our tour at fort white farms and we've had them on the show before um, is that they keep and maintain bees so they yeah. market the honey under the brand harmony honey and you can actually purchase that honey at Fort White's nature shop. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue talking about Fort White Farms. We will hear from Jackie Avent, Director of Sustainability at Fort White Live, and she'll tell us about their amazing facility and how they're helping to educate and train youth about nature, agriculture, and sustainability. But first, here's Neil Young with his song Harvest Moon right here on River City 360. Welcome back to River City 360. Nolan and Robert with you here this morning. Uh, before the break, we were telling you all about our trip out to Fort White Farms, a fantastic social enterprise and education center just outside Winnipeg. 
And uh, while we were there, I was able to speak with Jackie Avent, Director of Sustainability out at Fort White. Uh, We talked about sustainability, uh, education, and how Fort White is helping to make a difference for youth that attend their programs. For our listeners that don't or aren't familiar with Fort White, just give us a general uh, sense of what Fort White is and what you guys do here. Yeah, Fort Wade is a great place where people from Winnipeg and around Manitoba can come and experience the outdoors. We have many opportunities for people to connect with nature and to learn about sustainability and how that's embodied on a day-to-day uh, in a day-to-day way. So, for example, uh, happening here today, you might hear some camp counselor sounds in the background. We're training camp counselors to lead summer camps for youth from like three years old to 13 years old uh, over different weeks throughout the summer months. Uh, We have the sailing boats out uh, through Sailing Manitoba today on the lake. Uh, There's paddling programs that are offered. There's education uh, and workshops around uh, greening your home or um, your uh, reusing or DIYing things that you might need around your house. So anything that we have uh, here is accessible and available to people of all ages. You were telling us about sustainability a little bit earlier. Maybe speak to how you're approaching sustainability when it comes to Fort White and, and your role in it because it's kind of a trendy sort of a thing right now and people are really beginning to be conscious of their carbon footprint. So maybe speak to that and what what, uh, what programs you have in place here. For sure, Fort White Alive uh, has a sustainability plan. So it was a joint effort uh, between staff from different departments in Fort White to come together and make a sort of inventory of the things we were already doing related to sustainability and sustainable living and the things that Fort White could improve on. So for example, are we recycling? Are we composting? How much are we throwing in the garbage? So when we do summer camps, when we have school groups come out, we encourage them to bring litterless lunches and we'll do an activity with them around the litterless lunch, which is the concept of making sure you try not to have zero, you have tried to have zero waste as part of your lunch bag. So bringing things in reusable containers and recycling or composting what you can that comes out of that. Um, We also are looking at some of the more operational side of things our carbon footprint with respect to building emissions and transportation emissions on site we've got tractors at the farm we've got gators that we use to get around the site our maintenance crew uses lawnmowers and all those things that people have at home so we're looking at ways that uh, we can reduce the impact of those things on our site and seeing what is our sort of greenhouse gas footprint out of Fort White Alive. Brilliant. I actually saw the electric fence out by the pigs uh, was solar powered, so very, very sustainable. Well, how important is it for the kids that come here to learn about these concepts that they maybe have never heard of or never thought about certainly before coming from the city and maybe not getting out to to wilderness far too often. So how important is it um, to teach kids these concepts at an, at an early age? That's a very good question because it speaks to sort of how we embody ourselves in our daily lives and at home, but also like how how is that connected to nature and why is that connection important? So Richard Louvre is a author that wrote a book called Last Child in the Woods and his uh, topic is around nature deficit disorder. So kids becoming disconnected from nature, not having contact with the outdoors, not understanding how really intertwined we are 
uh, in our urban jungles with the forest and the water and the sky and the fire that um, is what makes life possible on planet Earth. So uh, because kids are spending more time in front of all, of all kinds of screens, they're maybe more protected by parents who are concerned about things happening in their own neighborhood, they're losing that valuable independent playtime and the opportunity to be outdoors and engaging with nature and just becoming curious about the natural environment. So when youth or adult children of all ages really come to Fort White we give them the chance to get their hands dirty to understand that yes this is what a real forest looks like yes this water might be murky but it is safe to swim in yes these animals are wild this is not a zoo um, they're not domesticated the bison okay they're they're in a cage but you know this is actually like a working farm that's doing more than just a petting zoo like it's it's the opportunity for for people to see that connection of the natural environment and how we have evolved as humans to live as part of it so we try to create like a sustainable human habitat and what does that look like because downtown Winnipeg is not really a sustainable human habitat we need greenery and we need nature to keep ourselves mentally and physically healthy and probably uh, when you were saying this is where thing all everything comes this is from where your bacon and eggs literally come from you can actually see the anim- raise the animals and and literally when you hear the term farm to table that's exactly what they're doing from the very start to the very end when they're eating the food so what are some of the reactions when kids are actually able or not necessarily kids but kids and people are able to see the entire process and, and what do you think that that instills in them one of our major pillars of the work that we do at Fort White is at Fort White Farms it's uh, a very uh, important component of our social enterprise program and being able to bring youth from core areas of the city that might be more vulnerable or underserved in some populations to actually uh, get a chance to learn life skills, to get their hands dirty, to see that full from planting the seed to the harvest and seeing it come uh, to fruition. The tagline for the farm is growing youth, food and community and it's very intentional to place youth uh, at the forefront of that because at the end of the day maybe we'll have a tomato crop failure this year because it's so wet but those youth that w- that will come through the program will still learn valuable life skills, they'll st- learn the ability to balance a budget, to see a project from start to finish, to know how to identify and prepare food from that they might then purchase at a grocery store they or that they can in some ways grow themselves the goal is to work with youth and help them become functioning and thriving members of society and we see that again and again they come in never having maybe cut an apple on the table maybe never even I mean some most everybody's seen an apple but you know they've never had the chance to interact with that fruit or that vegetable in a way where they're doing the preparation and uh, they leave here able to prepare meals for their families and it's between all the genders as well so even though it might not be a skill that uh, that a man or one of the boys has received at home they're able to bring that into their communities and share that with their families and celebrate that harvest and the feast so that's exactly what I incredibly rewarding Um, so where can our listeners go to find out more information or how can they come and actually come to the grounds and see what we saw today because it was incredible 
Well, the address of Fort White is 1961 McCreary Road, so it's accessible by car most easily, but there are some beautiful bike paths uh, in order to get here from um, all around the city. There's cycling maps available online and Google Maps can tell you how to find us. If you want more information about ours and some of the programs that are offered, uh, the website is www.fortwhite.org. Uh, F-O-R-T-W-H-Y-T-E. As always, you can phone our general information line and speak to visitor services, 989-8355. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Jackie, for talking to us today. My pleasure. It's been a real treat. Coming up after the break, Karen Davis and Angie Harris of the Dollywood Foundation join us to talk about the Imagination Library and how Dolly Parton has made it her life's work to get books to children around the world. But first, let's hear a song from Dolly herself. Here's Love is Like a Butterfly, right here on River City 360. Love is like a butterfly, as soft and gentle as a sigh. The multicolored moods of love like its satin wings Love makes your heart feel strange inside It flutters like soft wings and fly Love is like a butterfly, a rare and gentle thing I feel it when you're with me It happens when you kiss me That rare and gentle feeling that I feel inside your touch is soft and gentle, your kiss is warm and tender. Whenever I am with you, I think of butterflies. Love is like a butterfly. The multicolored moods of love like its satin wings. Love makes your heart feel strange inside. It flutters like soft wings in flight. Love is like a butterfly, a rare and gentle thing Your laughter brings me sunshine, every day is springtime And I am only happy when you are by my side How precious is this love we share, how very precious, sweet and rare Together we belong like daffodils and butterflies butterfly as soft and gentle as a sigh the multicolored moods of love like its satin wings love makes your heart feel strange inside it flutters like soft wings in flight love is like a butterfly a rare and gentle thing love is like a butterfly a rare and gentle Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning, and we're now joined in studio by two very special guests. We've got Angie Harris and Karen Davis, both of the Dollywood Foundation. Angie is the Director of International Programs, and Karen is the director or the Manitoba Director for the Dollywood Foundation. So, ladies, thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you, you so much, much, Nolan. We're so happy to be here. It's such a beautiful day. And yes. Yeah. We're, um, I'm actually here to support Karen, who is the Director for Manitoba, Based in Tennessee in Pigeon Forge in Sevier County, where Dolly is from. Right. Yes. So tell tell me a little bit about the Dollywood Foundation, just in sort of general terms. What, what are you What are you guys all about? We mail books to children, age appropriate books, from zero to four. Their books come in the mail. 
their books have their names on them, and they're for keeps. Oh, nice. So a child who registers at birth will receive 60 books in total um, before entering kindergarten. So one a month for four years, basically? That's how They received their last book when they turned five. Okay, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why is it important to get kids started reading early? Basically, um, I'm originally from Ebb and Flow First Nation, and I've spent my entire career working with social service, uh, promoting literacy, um, education, different things like that. But it is important for me as a person to want to provide opportunities for our families and their preschoolers to be the best they can be when they start school, to have all those special skills, to feel confident, you know, and... um, we all want our children to graduate and go on po- post-secondary, and I'm a firm believer that graduation begins at home with their parents. And the earlier that you get started, the better, obviously, yes. to get on that path as soon as you're in kindergarten, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, and um, a lot of people don't know this, but the brain is developed um, 90% by the time a child turns five. So really, it is parents are the very first teachers. That's perfect. So what, what's been happening? I understand Dolly played earlier this week, so that's probably why you guys are in town. How, is, how has Winnipeg treated you so far? Oh, it's been fantastic. For me, it's been my first time oh, cool. to visit Winnipeg and to, to visit Manitoba. Oh, cool. And it's a beautiful city, and everyone is so friendly. And we've met with uh, many organizations who are interested in supporting the initiatives here. We had an excellent meeting earlier this week with the, the Southern Chiefs. And, oh, wow. Uh, we're very proud of Karen Davis for the work that she's done here. And she made a commitment in 2009 to make sure all 63 First Nation communities in Manitoba were part of the Imagination Library. And this year, mission accomplished. Wow. And we're, we're very proud of the work that she's been doing in getting children enrolled. Earlier this week when we met with the Southern Chiefs, she challenged each community to register all of their children. And if a community is able to meet that challenge, then we promised that Dolly would send them a very special message by video. Oh, awesome. That's a great, that's a pretty incredible perk if they can make that happen, then that's cool. So why is it important, Karen, to get these nations involved and get the chiefs on board? Well, you know, um, a lot of people don't know this, but out of 63 First Nations in Manitoba, only one, and that's the biggest one, Pegwas has a library. Oh. So there's no libraries, you know what, um, very few have, you know, banks or anything else. Most of our northern communities only have uh, a northern store, and obviously grateful for that, but the northern stores don't sell books. And it's probably super expensive to get them if you... Yeah, exactly. And the gift of our program is that um, we've had many sponsors come to the table and sponsor the books for our First Nation communities. Um, And we've also replicated many other areas, Winkler, Riverton, you know, Selkirk and different things like that. But for our First First Nation communities where there are no books, it is so important to get books in the hands of the children promoting literacy, language and learning. Absolutely. So I understand that out of all of the kids enrolled in Canada, Manitoba has 39% of the total amount of kids. Is that right? That's right. 39% of all of the children enrolled in Canada come from Manitoba. So is that just because of Karen's? tireless work it is it's because of karen 49 percent of our partners we call them partners slash affiliates are also based in manitoba and that's because of karen's work you know nolan we want to as an organization we want to double the number of books that we're sending a month right now we are about we're almost at a million books per month 
going to children around the world. So we operate in the United States where the majority of our children are enrolled in Canada and we're celebrating our 10th year here. We started in Canada in 2006. Wow. We're in the United Kingdom, in Australia, and we're doing a pilot project in Belize. Cool. And in 2024, part of our 10-year strategic plan and goal is to have 2 million children enrolled in the Double program. We may exceed that number, we may not, but I'm sure we'll reach our goals. But we need the help of the community in, in all of the countries that we operate in, big or small. We need the help of the communities to promote the program, to register children, and to help our regional directors and our champions in, in registering children. We believe that by getting these books in the hands of children, we can help to change generations of communities by preparing children to be ready for kindergarten, to have the social and emotional well-being skills that they need when they're young that will carry them on through the trajectory of their lives. And we've seen through uh, research that's been done that children who are getting these books at least for three years that the dosage of the books on a monthly basis over a period of time is actually changing their kindergarten readiness skills. We're wow. seeing the data behind that. We're seeing an increase in their skills in entering kindergarten. And those children are being tracked. And um, we can see that they're really doing well in school. They're, they're behaving better. They're able to socially relate to other children and to adults better. Their vocabulary is increased. Their math literacy skills have been increased. So uh, having across books, the board, it's across a, the board, that's awesome. having books in hands that are age appropriate at this early age is very, very powerful. For and sure. you know, and, and for community, it's three dollars and fifty-five cents per book per child. The money is raised by um, our partners and our affiliates. The three dollars and fifty-five cents covers the book and the postage. Perfect. Dolly Parton subsidizes everything else. Wow. She subsidizes my salary, my travel, the employees, all of the admin costs come from, from Dolly. Amazing. Mm -hmm. So it's a unique program and we, we believe we're the largest book gifting program in the world and we are so lucky to have Dolly Parton to subsidize the rest of those costs. For sure. Making that a, a, one of her, you know, life Legacies. Legacies, yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that it needs to be sort of a community-driven initiative. Right. If for, for any grandparents that are listening or parents or teachers, how can they go and find out about this program and, and get involved? Um, they can go to, um, you know, the, the internet, um, theimaginationlibrary.com. Okay. Um, also, if they wanted to get information specifically in Manitoba, they can email me. K Davis at imaginationlibrary.ca. Uh, we do have a number of different requests, like from communities and different things, and we gently walk him through the process, you know, because it's in our best interest and, and community's best interest as well to have the program replicated where, you know, yesterday I got a request from, from someone in Carmen. So oh. we will reach out, you know, talk about a little bit about the process. And you know what, Winkler came on board just in the last year and a half. And I did a presentation there April, 
you know what, three months later, they had raised so much money and they were registering children and over 800 children today in Winkler are receiving free books. So that's all so it takes. It is amazing. Get on board and, and things will start taking off for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So that's imaginationlibrary, all one word, dot yeah. com for yes. more information. Or And your email again was? kdavis at imaginationlibrary.ca. Perfect. Thank you very much, Karen and Angie, for talking to me about the Dollywood Foundation today. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. Thank you so much, Nolan. We appreciate Enjoy it. Enjoy the rest of your time in Manitoba. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again, Karen and Angie, for taking the time to talk to us today. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Kevin Lamaru, the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg, and we'll learn about why truth and reconciliation is important and what it means to us as a country. But before we get to that, here's Donna Fargo with What Will the New Year Bring? right here on River City 360. This past year was good to us The one before just a little rough The one before that was an awful thing What will the new year bring? Will it bring us a little more? Fill our lives with love and joy We've had a share of growing pains What will the new year bring? Used to one and one make two Now one and one make one I hope you will love me Throughout the year to come We've made our Mistakes with love We learn that it can't promise us Tomorrow and forever things What will the new year bring? Wish I hadn't read our horoscope Things look stormy for Scorpios Virgos supposed to sprout their wings What will the new year bring? Welcome back to River City 360. Robert here with you this morning. Earlier this season, we aired a series of conversations with Kevin Lamaru, the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg, on the subject of truth and reconciliation. While it can be kind of a complex topic, Kevin explains why it's important for everyone in a way that's very relatable. Here's RC360 Stacy Cardigan-Smith and her interview with Kevin Lamaru. What does truth and reconciliation mean to us as a country, and why is it important? There's a couple of answers to that question. The first is this, is that, you know, when we think about the legacy of residential schools and what that did to people, uh, it's important to remember that that didn't just happen to First Nations people, right? So it would be ridiculous to suggest that the damage wasn't heaviest in First Nations communities. And that's not what I'm suggesting, but what I am arguing is that 
the impacts of a broken relationship, of traumatized communities, of intergenerational traumas, of just the moral blemish of having done this to kids uh, affects all Canadians, and we're still living with the legacy of that today. And so truth and reconciliation, for me, uh, really represents a journey of Canada back home or, or back to the country that we should have always been. We've all been robbed of the opportunity to live in an equitable society. We've all been robbed of the opportunity to have a healthy relationship with, with one another. We've all been affected by this broken relationship. And so truth and reconciliation provides us with a way of, of evolving, growing into the country we should have always been, that should have been our birthright. It um, gives us a way to heal from the, the, the moral and social wound that uh, was inflicted on us. Through, through residential schools and, you know, the impositions of the Indian Act on First Nations people. But the other thing it does is provide us with the kind of future that I think that we would want for all of our kids. It's a place where everyone in Canada has the opportunity to experience belonging and opportunity and possibility. And I think that even the staunchest critic or the most reluctant thinker, if you get down to the surface, really wants to see a healthy Canada with no poverty, with less crime rates, with, with less of a uh, uh, some of the health concerns that we see. I mean, no one feels good about hearing about someone sitting in a hospital waiting room for 30 hours and no one comes and sees them. No one feels good about that. And I think that a lot of Canadians, you know, because of, you know, uh, a reluctance in the school systems historically to look at these issues really have no explanation uh, for why things are the way that they are. And Truth and Reconciliation provides that. It provides some answers to some tough questions. It provides us an opportunity to look inwards as people and as a country. And, uh, you know, quite simply, the calls to action provide us with a way home, a way forward, a way towards the country we should have always been. Okay, so that kind of leads into my next question. How can the average person support the calls to action? Well, that's easy. There's two things that I'm asking all Canadians to think about as, you, uh, as, as we think about truth and reconciliation and the calls to action specifically. Every Canadian, I think, should read the calls to action. There's 94 of them. There's a lot in there, but I think that it's, uh, it's a worthwhile read. It's a worthwhile study. And I'm asking all Canadians to think about two questions for every one of those 94 calls to action. The first one is this. Why is the recommendation being made? So as you go through the 94 calls to action, if we as individuals could answer for ourselves satisfactorily, why is this being asked of us? Why is this being asked of me? I think that that's the truth part of truth and reconciliation. I think in trying to answer that questions for ourselves would necessarily expose us to a story about Canada that many of us didn't grow up with. And so that's that's the first thing is, is to seek out some truth. Uh, in the truth and reconciliation. The second question that I'm asking all Canadians to think about for every one of those 94 calls to action is, would our country, the, the country that we share and the one we want to leave behind for our kids, be better or worse off if this call to action were fulfilled? Now, it sort of sounds like a, a leading question, and it, it most certainly is, but I think that there's something really interesting that Canadians will find in trying to answer that question, that in fact, our world is better off our country is better off if we're able to move towards reconciliation. Just in terms of social services, in terms of safety, in terms of well-being, in terms of health care, the, the, the bottom line is, is improved in Canada. But more than that, 
uh, I think it allows us to um, imagine a more morally grounded future where we can really feel proud of who and what we are as a country. Now, there's there's a lot that I feel proud about being uh, a Canadian, right? I mean, we are the shining beacon of hope for many people around the world, except that we haven't fully lived on to our full potential and that there are many here, you know, right now at home for whom there is no safety and there is no sense of belonging, there is, doesn't have that same opportunity that we are known for in other parts of the world, for other people around the world. And so... You know, I, I think that would our Canada be better off? I think that we would be exposed to a really exciting possibility for the Canada we leave behind for our kids. Coming up after the break, we will look back at the Winnipeg Public Library's Build Day, which gave 11 people the opportunity to build their very own little free libraries for their neighborhoods. If you're not sure what a little free library is, stay tuned. We'll explain it all in our next piece. But first, here's Ella Fitzgerald with What Are You Doing New Year's Eve, right here on River City 360. When the bells all ring and the horns all blow And the couples we know are fondly kissing Will I be with you or will I be among the missing? Much too early in the game Oh, but I thought I'd ask you just the same What are you doing, New Year's? New Year's Eve Wonder whose arms will Exactly twelve o'clock that night, welcoming in the new year, new year's eve. Maybe I'm crazy to suppose I'd ever be. Cafeteria at the Cindy Clausen Recreation Complex was pretty busy on Saturday afternoon, but not in the way you might expect. It served as a workshop for one of two build days, where, with the help of Winnipeg Public Library staff and volunteers, four soon-to-be stewards were hard at work assembling their very own little free libraries. 
Little free libraries are book exchanges set up throughout the city that anyone can borrow a book from or add a book to. It's an idea that started in Wisconsin in 2009 and has spread all around the world, with the first ones appearing in Winnipeg just a couple of years later. Just seeing one inspires many people to become stewards in their own neighborhoods. Uh, I remember one day we were walking around the Worsley area with our little boy, then we saw one free library. This is Lovemore Malonga. He lives in Winnipeg's West End and was among the four stewards building a little free library that afternoon. Then we realized that in our area where we live, we don't have any library like that one. And we thought it would be a great idea for the community. And that's part of the goal of Build Day, to get little free libraries in neighborhoods that are underserved. If you look at a map of little free libraries throughout the city, they have a tendency to be some of the older neighborhoods, the established neighborhoods and such. That's Kathleen Williams, Administrative Coordinator of Community Outreach and Marketing at Winnipeg Public Library. We really wanted to focus on some of the cities that were a little bit lower income and didn't necessarily have access to a local public library and to give them that opportunity to um, have their own little free libraries in those areas. Build Day was supported by a grant from the Winnipeg Foundation's Literacy for Life Fund. Along with a starter bag of books, including all eight selections from the On the Same Page Book Club, each of the Build Day participants were supplied with a kit that they assembled in about an hour and a half. But little free libraries can also take on different shapes and sizes, as Kathleen explains. Anyone can build a little free library themselves. There doesn't have to be any kind of permissions from any organization or anything like that. Some of them are repurposed cabinets, for instance, that they have just weatherproofed and put outside. Some people have used old newspaper boxes, uh, which are, of course, designed to be weatherproof and reuse those. It may only take a couple of hours to build a little free library, but the community that builds around it lasts for a long time to come. For a lot of individuals, they may not have known that who lived in that house three doors down, but now they're seeing them come out to, to uh, check out their Little Free Library and exchange books and such, and so, uh, and that's a big goal of the Little Free Library organization, that community building, which means getting to know your neighbor and having those conversations with each other. The selection of books circulating at a Little Free Library is often influenced by the community it serves. At some Little Free Libraries, children's books are immensely popular. And Kathleen even mentioned that some of the stewards at Build Day were looking into stocking books in Filipino or Indigenous languages. And although the libraries built that day were all a sky-blue color, most of them won't stay that way. That was probably one of my biggest dreams of getting a Little Free Library was so that I could decorate it. <laughs> Cassandra Kovacs first came across a Little Free Library in St. Vital three years ago, and she's wanted one of her own ever since she purchased a house in the West End. I actually make uh, fairy gardens and things like that in my downtime, and uh, I was planning on kind of doing something similar to that with this and making it like a little fairy house, fairy library, so very earthy and kind of magical. And that's the other neat thing. Each individual Little Free Library offers a unique way for stewards to introduce themselves to their neighbors. I plan to paint it to greens. This is Anne Shirley Clough. She's a lifelong reader as well as a gardener. And her Little Free Library will reflect both of those interests. I'll be putting it in my front garden, which is all different perennials and so on. I plan to have the outlines of ostrich fern leaves and another thing called Solomon's seal and a little fancier handles and eventually a little fancier hinge.
you can find some interesting little free libraries all over the city. Kathleen shared a few of her favorites. In the Wasp Broadway area, it's an old elm tree that was cored out and has uh, the book set within it. It's absolutely gorgeous. There is one up in the North Kelowna area that has a built-in bench, so you can sit and relax and enjoy that as well. There's one that um, is Star Wars inspired. We have another one that's a TARDIS box. And those aren't all. There are now more than 70 little free libraries in Winnipeg. And with these four new libraries from Saturday and another seven that were built on Sunday, chances are even greater that there's a little free library close to you. If you'd like to locate one in your neighborhood, check out the Little Free Library map on the Winnipeg Public Library website, which is wpl.winnipeg.ca. And if you're interested in building a Little Free Library of your own, you can find a lot of great information, or you can purchase a kit at the Little Free Library website, which is littlefreelibrary.org. Coming up after the break, we'll learn about Camerata Nova and one of its upcoming performances in 2017. But first, here's Giselle McKenzie with The Loveliest Night of the Year, right here on River City 360. When you are in love, it's the loveliest night of the year. Stars twinkle above, and you almost can touch them from here. Words fall into rhyme anytime you are holding me near. When It's the loveliest night of the year Pulsing along in the blue Like a breeze drifting over the sands Thrilled by the wonder of you And the wonderful touch of your hand And my heart starts to beat Like a child when a birthday is near so kiss me, my sweet, it's the loveliest night of the year. Yes, it's the loveliest night of the Throughout the next year on River City 360, we'll be bringing you stories connected to the themes of Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs. Good morning and welcome to River City 360. Robert and Nolan here with you this morning and we are now joined by Andrew Balfour. He's the Artistic Director of Camerata Nova. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Good morning. Camerata Nova is described as, quote, a vocal group without fear. What is Camerata Nova for people who maybe aren't familiar with the group and what can people expect to hear at a Camerata Nova concert? Camerata Nova is a vocal chamber ensemble. Uh, we've been around for 20 years. Um, we are a group that likes to explore, to try new things, to approach music differently. And I think that if you come to one of our concerts, there's, there's something in it for, 
for anybody, quirkiness, eccentric, uh, outstanding musicianship, um, great artistic ideas. We're quite a collective of, of, uh, of creative people, so I really believe that uh, we're kind of cutting edge, I would like to think. As artistic director, what is your role at Camerata Nova? My role is to oversee the general feeling of artistic endeavors, to work with our co-conductors, our curators of each concert, to work out and flesh out uh, ideas and music, and to take that to the board of directors and uh, work with the board and the organization to make these uh, sometimes very uh, off-the-wall and ec- uh, eccentric ideas come to fruition. Now, when you say vocal group, is it mainly compositions that are a cappella, or are there some that also have instrumentation? Oh, we, we do quite a bit of stuff a cappella, but we also do quite a few things with in- instrumentation. We started out as an a cappella group. Uh, mostly we were interested in the, in the repertoire from the 16th century, so we'd be singing a lot of Renaissance and early Baroque music, but we've moved on to, uh, to other uh, style periods, and uh, even last year we were doing klezmer music, and we do music with uh, jazz musicians and what have you, so we're quite all over the board sometimes. Camerata Nova's been performing for over 20 years now. Mm-hmm. How did the group all get started? We started uh, in the late 90s, um, myself and, f- and uh, five other uh, singers wanted to, we were out of university and we wanted to continue singing, so we decided we loved this repertoire, as I mentioned, the Renaissance repertoire, and we decided to meet uh, informally in our living room, drink a little bit of wine, eat some pretzels, and, and, uh, and sing through music. So it kind of started in those early, rather amateur ways to where we are right now, so it's very exciting. Very cool. So it was kind of a grassroots, just a bunch of friends coming together, and then it became something bigger. It did, and I think a lot of the groups like that do start out that way. So we still have a very, very close-knit uh, group, but we're quite overwhelmed by, by the organization these days, in a good way. How do singers become part of the group? I would imagine that there have been maybe some who have joined up and some who have departed throughout the 20 years. How do people get involved? We usually have auditions at the beginning of the year. A lot of it is word of mouth. One of our co-directors is a professor at the University of Manitoba, Mel Braun. So he has a large opera uh, and vocal studio. So uh, we get a lot of university students these days. I think we figured out last year in our 20th year anniversary that we had had something like 88 singers come through our group. And that's that's pretty good because our membership is usually to 14 singers a year, so it's uh, it's a pretty small chamber ensemble. So uh, we're very fortunate enough to have some excellent singers come through our choir in the last couple of years. There are three shows that are scheduled for the 2016-2017 season. But I want to talk about Taken, and that one premieres in 2017 and incorporates Indigenous music. Mm-hmm. Tell us about some of the compositions that are part of that program. This is a very exciting and thought-provoking concert. It kind of uh, delves into some... Uh, very heavy issues involving First Nations people, and we have three guest artists taking part in this concert, working around the theme of Taken. We have wonderful Jeremy Dutcher, who is from New Brunswick, is a fantastic singer and performer, quite internationally known in the community. He's from Mi'kmaq First Nations, and he's writing about the the Taken of a language. I think there's something like only 500 speakers of Mi'kmaq, and so he's going to be writing about that subject, and he's a wonderful performer as well. We have uh, Saskatoon-based uh, Lindsay Knight, uh, who is better known as Equal, who is a hip-hop artist. And so we're going to be actually, for the first time, we're going to be working with a hip-hop artist. And we're going to be uh, utilizing the hip-hop sounds by the choir. Mel Braun is going to be arranging that. And I'm writing a piece based on um, Martin Frobisher arriving in Baffin Island in the late uh, 15th century and uh, taking uh, Inuit back to Europe as curiosities. So there's some pretty heavy uh, and thought-provoking ideas in this concert, but for us... 
it's a very, very important concert, and we're, we're really actually working very hard right now getting that concert ready for March. Winnipeg's art scene is known for being very collaborative. What are some of the notable collaborations between Camerata Nova and other musicians that have happened over the past years? I think one of our successes is, is our collaborative uh, approach to things. We try to work with, uh, we've worked with the symphony, we've worked with members from the chamber orchestra, we've worked with the contemporary dancers, worked with different styles and different uh, levels. Like I mentioned last year, we were working with klezmer musicians, Danny Kulak and Victor and Myron Schultz, and that was a really success. Again, something we've never done before. I think it's a certain amount of uh, trust and artistic integrity that when we work with people, we there's a lot of respect and there's a lot of open and give and take. Whether it's musicians that are uh, that we're used to or musicians that we've never worked with before. Uh, I remember, we, like several years ago, we worked with uh, Vince Fontaine from Indian City, and we that did a really successful concert. Um, I think again, it's just the way that we approach it, and we really trust the musicians that we're collaborating with, and. Winnipeg is a great city to collaborate with uh, people because people are so open here and willing to try new ideas, which I think is vital for an artistic community. And I think that's kind of what's exciting about for all for the singers and for the conductors and uh, hopefully in the end the audience is that uh, we're willing to try new things, but we're actually quite open to if singers have an idea to do things. We have a lot of very unique talents within the group. We have a didgeridoo player. We have people that can sing vocal overtones. We have people that can act. So we try to utilize all those different uh, talents we have in a group rather than just the singing. So it is, uh, it's a lot of fun for us, actually, and I think that uh, we never really get tired of it, so there's always new ideas, and every year we think that, oh, it's, are we going to have ideas for next year? But we usually always do. We're actually right now just in the process of finishing off grant applications for concerts in two or three years' time, so it's always having to keep ready and for plan for several years ahead. What are some of your hopes for the future of Camerata Nova? I think that we're feeling ready... Th- to go to Europe for a tour, I think. It's very expensive to do that these days, of course, so I think right now what we're looking at is different ways to approach that. We're actually going to be in Ottawa this this June for the Canada Scene Festival, which is, of course, the celebration of Canada's 150th anniversary, and it'll be a a six-week festival in Ottawa called Canada Scene, put on by the National Arts Centre Orchestra, so we're actually taking our Taken concert to that festival. So we don't get a chance to tour that often. Half our memberships are teachers, so it's hard for them to get the time off uh, to tour, but uh, I think in the future, in the next couple of years, that we will be looking at that very seriously. Uh, I really feel that uh, Europe would be a great tr- opportunity for our group, and I really feel that uh, it's sort of a, another stepping stone. Where we never really know where we're going to go, but we certainly feel that we're we're having fun. <laughs> That's great. Where can people go to get more information on Camerata Nova and any of the upcoming shows this coming season? We have a very uh, in-depth website, CamaradaNova.com. We have all, you can order tickets online, you can order recordings, you can find out more information about the directors, the singers, we have wonderful pictures. You can actually even order music that uh, I've written, other composers, Mike McKay, uh, Mike Schallenberg, uh, past and former members of Camerata Nova have arrangements there, so check it out on CamaradaNova.com. That's excellent. And as Andrew said, if you want any information on any of the shows in Camerata Nova's 2016-2017 season, you can visit camaradanova.com. Andrew, thank you so much again for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Stay tuned to River City 360 throughout the year for more stories connected to Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information about Vital Signs, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs.
Welcome back to River City 360. Robert here with you this morning, and we've got time for one more song. So here are The Bachelors with I Wouldn't Trade You for the World, right here on River City 360. I wouldn't trade you for the world. All the pearls in the sea. sweetest dreams with a love so divine you're like precious gems and spices it's so wonderful your mind I love your tender And that's a wrap on River City 360's 2016 Year in Review. Thank you very much for listening, and a big thank you to all of our guests who joined us throughout our second season. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, you can do so online. The address to visit is rivercity360.org. I wouldn't trade you for the world. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with 93.7 CJNU-FM. And if you have any feedback about the program, if you'd like to request a song or suggest a topic for a future show, give us a call and leave a message 24-7. Our number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can also find us online on Facebook, search for River City 360, and on Twitter, we are at River City 360. I'm Robert Zirk signing off for River City 360. On behalf of my co-host Nolan Bicknell, thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great Sunday and a very happy new year.